0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha, and today we have a special guest host, Ben Rubinstein, along with guest Dan Kovalec, joining us to talk to us about the history of Nicaragua. So Dan, yeah. the very first question, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I think
1: all of the disinformation that Uh, I've been seeing about Nicaragua, I think uh, it's fair to say that since 2018, Nicaragua has really been under a propaganda assault. Yep. um, Even amongst the left in the West. Oh, my uh, God.
0: Let's not even get started on that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I felt like I had to, you know, I to defend it, you know, and I am, a, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but I am a long time defender of Nicaragua and the Sandinista revolution. And I really had had enough of the misinformation.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Um, I just uh, I inhaled this book. It was so uh, detailed. It was so nice. It was like one of my favorite. I've, I've read your other books, of course. We did last time you came on you did no more war and this one it, it's amazing how early you start with and then like how much how how oh, you almost give like a complete almost 200 to 300 year history of Nicaragua. So it was one of my favorite books to read. Um
1: well thank you. Thank you that means the world to me. <laughs>
2: So, Dan, um, what would you say are some of the core disinformation um, campaigns that you sort of tried to debunk in this book?
1: Well, I mean, the big one, of course, is that, you know, this portrayal of Daniel Ortega as the new Samosa. I mean, that's really, you know, that... uh, Equation that's being tried to be made. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: I was so annoyed when he released all these. Like, t- how how many contrasts did he release?
1: About two hundred twenty, I think, something like that.
0: Yeah, I was so annoyed. I'm like, oh, how dare you guys? Like, that is like the opposite of authoritarian. And we know many of these. Once they go to DC, they'll be back doing um, their. Yeah, I think stuff the exact again.
2: number <laughs> was two hundred twenty two. And an interesting tidbit, Dan. I don't know if you uh, got into this at all. Was um, they offered Alvarez, uh, Bishop Alvarez, who was recently uh, arrested for like coup, coup-esque activities. Um, and he signed the document to, um, or no, he didn't sign the document. He verbally agreed to go to the U.S. And as he was boarding the plane, he changed his mind and started demanding to talk to the clergies and refused to sign the paper Uh, and refused to get on the plane so they actually offered him his freedom as well
1: yeah i had heard that and that he declined um yeah and it is amazing i mean again and this was portrayed of course as some you know repressive act sending 222 pro u.s people to the u.s uh i mean know. For them, it must be a living hell to get a free one-way ticket to the United States. Um,
2: the country they spent all their time praising. Yes.
0: Uh, and money. Uh, and and their gravy train from all the national endowment activity.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, it was again, like, uh, when you compare what these people did, which, which was organize a very violent insurrection that killed over 200 people that Did billions of dollars of property destruction that destroyed the economy. Um, Tortured cops. Yeah, tortured cops raped people.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I saw that video from 2018.
1: Very few world leaders would put up with that. Very few countries would treat people with kick gloves in the way that Daniel Ortega uh, has. I mean, to put a finer point on it, you know, a lot of these people would have been tried for treason and, and summarily shot. Um, Absolutely. And again, instead, these guys got a one-way ticket to the United States.
2: Yeah, and it just shows how powerful the propaganda machine is that they can uh be given their freedom and somehow that's turned into uh, a bad thing. Now it's being used to, to demonize Nicaragua despite, despite the fact that um it's one of one of the most uh courageous acts of um uh, of justice that I mean I wouldn't even call it justice.
0: Yeah. Call this justice because I feel like Depending on some of their actions, I feel like they were exactly where they belonged in Nicaragua.
2: And I think Dan would agree with me here and correct me if I'm wrong. But if they had allowed them to just enter, reenter the population of Nicaragua, there would have been massive discontent among the population because these these people are essentially terrorists.
1: Yes, celebrations broke out when people learned they had been sent away. I mean, there were mass (laughs) protests supporting uh, the deporting of these people. Uh, I think, yes, to the extent people were unhappy with Ortega after 2018, it was because he was not more punitive, it, you know, and not because of bloodlust or the desire for revenge, but people wanted to feel safe, you know, and these people, as you say, if allowed to be on the streets, you know, would organize, again, uh, violent actions and uh, endanger people's lives, so they the people clamored for justice, as you say, they wanted these people gone, and once they were gone, people were glad and in fact, very shortly after that, there was a poll taken and I guess there was a worldwide poll very you know various countries were polled as to how peaceful their their country they thought their country was, and Nicaragua scored the highest in the world of people saying that they felt their country was peaceful, and again, I think. That was a reaction to the fact that uh, Danielle got rid of
2: these people. Definitely. And if you even talk to Sandinistas, as Dan, I'm sure you do all the time, um, they'll tell you that, like, if this happens again, they won't wait for the government to act. They're going to organize themselves because they, they feel strongly about protecting that, that very peace that you mentioned.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about a revolution, And we talk about being a revolutionary. You know, the first, the first duty of a revolution is to defend itself and its people, right? I mean, a revolution that cannot defend itself is not worth anything, right? Because it will go away. I mean, that's kind of an obvious point. And yet they're often criticized by people in the, in the left, uh, Western left who, have really forgotten you know the fact that counter revolutions are real that they're deadly and that that a revolution needs to fu- figure out a way how to deal with those things um and and yeah.
0: which we'll get to the contra's very soon and i mean there are like the contra's sins are crimes are unimaginable But before we do that, early on in your book, you talk about Augusto Sandino, and he provides the basis for the whole Sandinista movement. Can you explain what he did and what his role was and what happened to him?
1: Yeah, yeah, he's an amazing figure. Um, I think he's not as known in the West as he should be. I mean, he really is up there in the pantheon of worldwide revolutionaries. He should be up there with a... A Lenin, Fidel Castro. So he was uh, a kind of a lower middle class guy. He was a mechanic, and uh, he's from a small town outside of uh, Masaya, Nicaragua. And the you know, as I mentioned in the book, one of the things he saw as a child was uh, the dead body. Of, uh, a Nicaraguan president that was, uh, dragged through the streets after the Marines had invaded and deposed him. And this made a huge impact on him. He's, uh, he vowed at that point that he would resist the U.S. Marines. And as he got older, he did just that. He, uh, ended up in, um, Nueva Segovia. Um, and he organized mostly peasants into a guerrilla group that, uh, attacked the U.S. Marines who, who invaded around 1910 and, um, Sandino launched his offensives, I believe, in 1927. Um, and by 1933, he had driven the Marines out of, out of Nicaragua. This was an amazing feat, right? I mean, the U.S. Marines, um, had not been driven out of a country in that way. And, uh, it's interesting, as I note in the book, if you go to Playa Girón in Cuba, also known as the Bay of Pigs, um, there's a plaque there that says, this is the first, you know, location, the first place that U.S. imperialism was defeated. And that's a reference to the Bay of Pigs defeat of, of the U.S. mercenaries in 1961. Uh, but, of course, Sandino had already pulled that off in 1933. So he gets an incredible amount of, of or should get an incredible amount of credit for that. Uh, you ask what happened to him. Well, he was never defeated in battle. And finally when the US Marines leave first of all they didn't leave without preparing you know uh the groundwork for rule uh, you know US rule through proxy they they, they 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 yeah they created the National Guard uh under Anastasio Somoza uh before leaving and um but once they leave the president at that time of Nicaragua invited Sandino to Managua ostensibly to sign a peace deal to end the conflict, and, and Sandino was happy to do that. The main thing he wanted to do was get rid of the Marines uh, and restore democracy, and he hoped that that was happening. And uh, when he was there uh, in Managua for that, he was murdered.
2: And that was under the command of, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, of the U.S. installed President William Walker. Is that correct? Uh, William
1: Walker was back in the 1850s. Ah, Okay, okay. Uh, No, this was, I'm forgetting the name of this president, but in the end, it was really Samosa and his National Guard. Samosa was not president yet, but he would be soon, uh, who organized his assassination. And his body was uh, disappeared his his remains have never been found uh which is a huge uh, uh uh tragedy amongst the Nicaraguan people you know that they could never properly mourn sandino and his death uh but in any case he was murdered his remains uh disappeared and uh shortly after uh Samosa declared himself uh, really, dictator of Nicaragua, and he and his two sons would rule Nicaragua with an iron hand from then on, from 1934 until they were overthrown by the Sandinistas in 1979.
0: Okay, I have two questions. Um, I heard that, okay, the, uh, like somebody, I think they did an audit, and Somoza was the biggest landowner in Nicaragua, and he owned like an exorbitant amount of land. So, can you quickly talk about the conditions for rural peasants in Nicaragua uh, under the Somoza dictatorship?
1: Y- yes. I mean, the conditions for the peasants, for workers, for most people outside the few rich was terrible. I mean, Somoza did nothing to develop the country. He owned not only most of the land, he owned uh, factories as well. In fact, if you go to Nicaragua, the, the streets are paved. Uh, although a lot are paved over now, but you'll still see these stones that, that many of the uh, roads are paved with. And they they used to, I don't know if they're still called this, Ben, you can tell me whether, but they, they used to be called samosa stones because it was his company that made the
2: stones. Oh. I, I actually hadn't heard that. That's fascinating. Yeah, and those stones,
1: by the way, were used by the insurrectionists in 2018 to build the Tronches. Um, oh my! Because you can pull them up. They're, they're almost put down like a puzzle, right? So you can pull them up, and ah. and, um, and they used them to 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 build these barricades. And by the way, the Sandinistas did that too in the seventies when they were had their insurrection against Samosa. So the, the the insurrectionists in two thousand eighteen tried to copy a lot of things the Sandinistas did to to confuse people as to the nature of, of themselves. But in any case. Samos owned all these factories, including the 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 stone company. Uh, you know, so he and of course, so he laid all the stone around the country because he made money off it. But and and famously during the nineteen seventy two earthquake or or thereafter, which
0: The blood, yeah. I was shocked when he literally sold people's he's, blood. Yeah,
1: he was known as the vampire because he literally sold people's blood. What he did, um Well, first of all, he stole all the aid money. So all the aid that came in was just stolen by him. And, of course, this leads, first of all, to the death of the great one, uh, Pittsburgh Pirates star Roberto Clemente, who goes to Nicaragua after learning of this to bring aid himself, knowing that the aid he had already sent was probably stolen by Somoza. And his plane crash uh, blows up, I believe, on the runway in Puerto Rico and he dies.
2: There's actually a monument to Roberto Clemente here in Monaco. Yeah, and there's a, a stadium of Messiah. And in fact, that's being rebuilt
1: now, the Roberto Clemente Stadium. And
2: of course... Actually, yeah, I think you, I, I was with you the day that you talked, that I learned about Roberto Clemente when we were heading to Cinemateca Nacional.
1: That is correct, because I think there's a mural there that I probably... Pointed out to Clemente in the park there. And of course I live in Pittsburgh and we have plenty of memorials to him here and a big statue and a bridge named after him. So, so that's one connection, but yeah, in addition to all that, what he did was he, uh, he had this plasma company and he would milk uh, uh, in particular desperate people, including drug addicts um, for plasma. Sometimes, uh, you know, He'd have them coming in a couple times or a few times a week for pennies uh, that they would get paid. And then he'd sell the plasma abroad, including to the United States at huge marked up prices. So he, he found a way to to profit uh, from this plasma. And as I mentioned in the book, it's pretty well ex- accepted that because of what he did, which was in the 1970s, uh, because a lot of this blood again was from from drug addicts using intravenous uh, you know needles and, and that sort of thing. Uh, the blood was tainted, and it's believed that this probably gave rise to the AIDS epidemic that that he probably contributed greatly to that uh, through this action by sending this bad blood to the United States. So that, you know, so it's just this guy was he was terrible from beginning to end. And yet of course he was the U.S.'s staunchest ally in all of Latin America.
0: Uh, more than Pinochet?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, in a sense, I mean, because first of all, he he lasted a lot longer. And they depended on him for many things. He helped have a you know staging ground for the Bay of Pigs invasion in Cuba. It was actually a big, it was his brainstorm uh, um, to uh, launch the coup against uh, um, um, uh, Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954. So not only was he, you know, did he manage the U.S.'s interest in Nicaragua, he really helped the U.S. spread their
0: freedom and democracy. (laughs)
1: you know, tentacles, yes, around the region, you know. So he was a very, you know, a critical player in, in the U.S. imperial system.
0: Seems like the Sandinista movement came up through the inspiration of Augusto Sandino and under Somoza's brutal dictatorship, every thousands were tortured, every bad thing happened to them. Like, how did they manage to get a foothold for their movement? And what did they do?
1: Well, so I mean, first of all, they founded the Sandinistas, which are named literally after Sandino, right? Sandinista is someone who adheres to...
0: Sandino's philosophy.
1: Sandinissimo. Right. And, you know, first they, you know, they organized amongst the peasantry uh, and amongst workers. um, And so they had two different tracks, as many revolutionaries do. They had the you know kind of civil peaceful track of organizing unions uh again both the peasants and workers and also organizing a guerrilla movement you know to in the mountains to physically assault the national guard and uh it was fairly low goings at the beginning um and it really picked up after the earthquake in 1972 after that happened, after everyone saw his corruption, even uh the bourgeoisie, the sentiment against Samosa really grew and, and the ranks of the sandinistas grew, and so they er- organized both uh you know guerrilla war uh, in the countryside and in the urban areas, and essentially they just overwhelmed. Uh, the National Guard, I mean, which was incredible because they were very much, uh, the firepower of the National Guard, which got their equipment from the United States, was much greater than that of the Sandinistas. I mean, many of the Sandinistas were fighting with like bricks and, uh, you know, stones and, um, handmade weapons and that sort of thing against tanks and even airplanes.
0: We all know about the School of Americas. Um, can you talk about the extremely close relationship like between the Nicaraguan Old National Guard and the School of Americas?
1: Yeah, so the School of Americas, which was based in Panama City and is now based and has been for some time in Columbus, Georgia, has trained some of the most repressive military and police forces in Latin America.
0: In the 1980s, they tried to do this, uh, like they tried to do a promo for the school and they interviewed this, quote unquote, some student. And then like in to- to- 2007, this person is now under trial for war crimes for doing, uh, for like just doing the worst things.
1: Yeah. I mean, pretty much every bad military leader in, in, in Latin America that you could think of has been trained there at one time or another. And that was true of the National Guard. their Their leaders were trained there. And they were trained in torture, uh, and murder. They and and there was this infamous School of the Americas training manual that was uh discovered, in which they were literally encouraging the folks they were training to torture and kill uh trade union leaders, indigenous leaders, human rights leaders, and even Catholic priests. Uh who defended the poor, you know, and so this was very, so, you know, if that's the input you're getting in, of course, you're going to be, you know, what what you do uh, when you get back home is pretty, pretty obvious. And so the, you know, the National Guard were brutal towards their own population. Um, and in, as I mentioned in the book, in the final year of the insurrection, which was 1978, the is killed uh, fifty thousand people, which is a huge amount of people, because at that time Nicaragua only had about two and a half million people. Huge proportion of the population. Oh
0: my god! Oh, wow, that was bloodbath. Literally,
1: and they mostly did it through aerial bombings of their own city. If you go to Messiah there's a park with a you know big monument saying here there untold numbers of people were killed when they dropped you know bombs right in the city center. Yeah, and of course, again, they were getting airplanes from the United States. I mean, and, and this was being done um with virtually no complaint from the United States. Um and then again, so in, in in many ways it was a miracle that the Santanistas won, but they did win because they had major popular support. At some point, you know, the tide had turned so much against Somoza that that he just couldn't keep the flood. Waters from from uh, overrunning him, but it it was uh, a miracle. And in fact, you know, no one thought outside Nicaragua that the Sandinistas would win. I mean, aside from Fidel Castro, they really weren't getting much outside support uh, because no one, for example, in the in the in the communist you know international movement, um, again, outside Fidel Castro believe they could succeed. I mean, no one thought this was going to win. I mean, in large part because they thought the the time for the guerrilla movement had ended. Um, really, they believed uh, with uh, um, with Fidel's successful revolution in 1959. Um, so people were really surprised uh, that the Sandinistas could pull it off. You know.
0: A lot of people don't know that one of the first miracles they did that was almost unprecedented is their amazing literacy campaign where before the literacy rate was somewhere at thirty percent and within five months they just um had it at eighty seven percent Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: yeah, I mean this again, this is an amazing feat i mean and in, in this you know the goal to teach people to read and write uh was again something dating back to Sosa and to the one of the founders of the Sandinistas in the 1960s Carlos Fonseca. And so yeah, immediately what they did uh under the leadership actually of a Catholic priest Father Ernesto Cardinal, they created this mass literacy program uh whereby about 100,000 volunteers went into the countryside, lived with the peasants and taught them to read and write. I mean, it's just an
2: incredible it was also, um, part of their curriculum, uh, uh, during that time. When you would learn to read, part of passing the course would be to then be sent anywhere in the country necessary to then teach somebody else how to read. And you had to do that in order to actually graduate from this program.
0: Oh, it's like re-gifting or like passing along. You know, there, there's a Christian saying about Passing along the gift. I'm not sure it seems like that
1: right yeah, exactly, and and, and it was actually it, the Cubans had done this too. That their motto was "Each one teach one Ah and uh of course, you mentioned Christianity. It was a very Christian revolution in many ways, again, that there were Catholic priests like Cardinal and his brother uh and Father Miguel descoto uh who were in the government, for example, the beginning uh Sandinista government. And yeah, I mean, there was a real Christian ethos to it, including the ethos of forgiveness, and that's why, uh you know, they they suspended the death penalty as soon as they took power in 1979. They released a lot of the Somisistas, uh from prison, and of course, the U.S. used this against them. Right? They organized the National Guard into the Contras, and 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 that begins another era. Okay.
0: In this audio, basically, Ronald Reagan says these contras are the moral equivalents of our founding fathers. These freedom fighters and we owe them our help. I've spoken recently of the freedom fighters of Nicaragua. You know the truth about them. You know who they're fighting and why. They are the moral equal of our founding fathers and the brave men and women
1: of the French resistance. We cannot turn away from them. Supposed- um
0: i have to say that i agree with him in that they were like genocidal and absolutely uh out of control but one thing that really is uh hard hard for people to understand is the the way the contrast attacked anyone related to the government so they would it didn't even matter if it's a postman he could be a postman and they would call him a collaborator and just brutally uh behead and uh uh, uh like what what was that strategy can you explain that
1: yes i mean it looked a lot like the phoenix program that the us had in vietnam and of course it, it was largely you know the cia really ran the contra operations and in fact there was this uh cia terrorism manual another manual that was discovered um which was Given to the
2: contras. The town of piwas we found a priest whose parish has been ravaged by contra attacks. Father Jim Feltz is an American, and along the paths he travels to make his rounds,
0: he has seen what the contras leave in their wake. The freedom fighters. huh? No? I've listened to that on the shortwave radio as I've gone from a township to township, picking up bodies and seeing houses that have been burnt down. Uh. Anybody who in any way was collaborating with the Sandinistas would be uh, a victim. Executions, lining up three or four women to be executed because their relatives were sympathizers to the Sandinistas. Unarmed women, off on remote farms, and they just kill them, slit their throat. Rape a girl of 14 years old because her father was uh, a member of a committee. And... uh, cut off her head and put her head along the the trail so that the rest of the campesinos get the idea that in no way should they be y- Yeah. So, the, I, I mean, unfortunately, so. I wish this was a unique to- story, but can you explain what their strategy was and why the brutality?
1: Yeah. So, first of all, unlike, well, again, they were portrayed as this popular guerrilla organization, kind of, again, like...
0: The Contras, yeah, right? Yeah, the
1: Contras. Uh, again, kind of borrowing from... Sandino claiming that, you know, they were trying to liberate uh, Nicaragua um, by overthrowing the goal, the claim goal being to overthrow the Sandinistas. Really, no one thought they could overthrow the the Sandinistas because the Sandinistas actually had great popular support. Um, There was a free and fair election in 1984 in which the Sandinistas won hugely. So everyone knew they had popular support. The the cultures were not going to overthrow the Sanities. So the goal instead, and again, this harkens back to the Phoenix Program, which was begun by the CIA in Vietnam in, I believe, 1968, when again there they realized they would not be able to overthrow and defeat the, v- the Viet Minh, who we called the Viet Cong. Well, there never was such a thing called the Viet Cong. <laughs>
0: the people's liberation right. Army.
1: <laughs> so the goal then becomes... To simply destroy the country. That is, if we can't beat you, if we can't overthrow you, we're going to destroy your project, right? So Uh,
0: so it's just like an arsonist.
1: Yeah. So we're going to destroy your economy, which the U.S. did, really. We're going to destroy your literacy campaign, in part by murdering literacy instructors and teachers. We're going to terrorize the country. And again, we may not overthrow the government, but we're going to make you pay for seeking an independent path from the United States. And we're going to show the world what happens when you overthrow a U.S.-backed dictator. You're going to be punished. And again, so we're going to go in and as, as this video or the audio that you play demonstrates, we're going to rape women. We're going to... Uh, brutalize families. Um, we're going to kill uh, priests. We're going to kill engineers that are building electric power grids and building sanitation systems, including, by the way, the American young American engineer Ben Linder, who was murdered by the Contras in 1987. Um, we're going to disrupt the country, and we're going to uh, destroy your revolutionary project which was meant of course to benefit the poor and we're going to make sure the poor stay poor because we do not want you to succeed we don't want you to show uh that that an independent path can lead to anything but misery and so that that's what happened and so for nearly 10 years the Contras terrorized the country they never took over one blade of grass in Nicaragua they were unable to hold any territory Because, they again, the only way guerrillas can do that is if they have popular support, which the colonies have had none.
0: Uh, Yeah, and their actions just preclude any kind. I mean, I I don't think I don't see how any human could support besides I guess.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly. Uh, But they did terrorize the country for nearly a decade. They killed another 30,000 Nicaraguans right on top of the 50,000 that were killed in the last year of the insurrection. Uh, by, by 1990, the economy was in ruins, not just from the countries, but from the U.S.'s economic warfare against Uh, the country. Were there sanctions? There were sanctions, there were embargoes, there were blockades. The CIA uh, blew up oil installations. Oh,
0: so it's exactly what they did in Cuba.
1: Yeah, mine the harbors.
0: Wait, they mined the harbor, so then boats would blow up if they tried to cross the uh, cross the line, the mining line.
1: Yes, and in fact, it, as the International Court of Justice in the case of Nicaragua versus U.S. pointed out, uh, they were so nasty, to the CIA that they didn't even inform their allies of this. Right, oh. so a few allied boats. I think an Italian boat was destroyed, uh, a French boat. You know, they didn't even tell their allies that, hey, we've mined the harbors, so maybe you don't want to go there. But, you know, that's how cruel this war was. And as we know, after 1987, after Congress finally, believe it or not, Congress was like, wow, these guys are terrible, these countries. So they cut off aid to of the Contras. And as we know now, Reagan um, continued to fund the Contras by, by selling cocaine on the streets of the United States, by selling.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about this? Because everyone kind of hears about the Iran Contra affair, where somehow they got weapons after it was forbidden. But can you just quickly mention, like, what the whole deal? What the how how he illegally funneled money to the Contras so that they could be uh, have weapons?
1: Yeah. So, and again, this is a matter of public record now because there were hearings on this at some point. Um. So yeah, after 1987 when congress cut off aid uh, the reagan administration decided well we're going to fund them anyway but they had to find illicit ways to do it so one way is yeah they sold weapons to iran which was under a an arms sanction at that time so it was illegal to do that but also just to show the cruelty of that the u.s at the same time was supporting saddam hussein I-
0: So they were selling weapons to both sides of the war.
1: Both sides of the brutal Iran-Iraq war in which a million people died. Yes, at some point they were giving arms to both sides or selling arms to both sides. But in addition to this, the CIA came up with a brilliant plan. And again, this is not unique. They did this during the Vietnam War as well, where they sold heroin to fund operations. Here they were selling cocaine.
0: Unfortunately, we cannot cocaine to Nicaragua in order to fund our podcast, we have to rely on you. So please become a paid subscriber. It's only $5 a month. Go to historically.net to become a paid subscriber.
1: And there was a reporter from the San Jose Mercury News, a guy named Gary Webb, who did a series of stories on this. Um, and he was vilified by... Pretty much all the Western press, they said he was a conspiracy theory, theorist. He was, you know, this is crazy. The CIA is selling cocaine, uh, you know, in Los Angeles to fund the countries, you know, this guy's nuts. He, and actually he was driven. Well, it's believed he was driven to suicide, though he committed suicide with bullets in the head. It's not known how he pulled that off, but in any case. Um, but you know, afterwards, you know, later, the news, same newspaper that vilified him like the New York Times actually had to concede that he was actually more right than he knew, that it was even worse than he had reported on. And that, yeah, it was true that the uh, CIA flooded the cities with cocaine to make revenue for the countries, again, not only supporting these terrorists in Nicaragua, but actually helping give rise to the crack ep- epidemic. In the cities. I mean, it's just incredible what we did to support Samosa and to support the Contras. It was something.
0: It's unbelievable. Um, So, you mentioned that for about 17 years, in 1990 through 2007, you call it the neoliberal years, um, where they kind of pulled off like a NED style neoliberal color. I don't know what to call it. But can you talk about how that happened and what happened during that time?
1: Yeah, so it was very simple. I mean, the Contras were not able to win militarily, but in a sense, the Contra war paid off because it so wore down the population that by the time elections were, were called in 1990, and the Sandinistas actually called early elections. Um. The Nicaraguan population was just exhausted, and the U.S. made it clear. I mean, the U.S. made essentially extorted the
2: population. Well, it's like voting with a gun to your head, right? Right. They said, "Look," and they
1: did this, by the way, uh, overtly. The U.S. ambassador went around the country telling people very clearly: if you vote for the Sandinistas again, we're going to continue the cultural war. We're going to continue the economic war. But if you vote for tomorrow, We'll end the war. We'll end the economic warfare. And we'll even give you some humanitarian aid, which by the way, they never did give that aid. Um, But, and the population was like, okay. You know, they cried uncle. They were like, we can't go on this way, you know? So they voted.
0: I mean, anyone would choose not to have their daughter, like, raped and beheaded and whatever else they did. Or, like,
2: or like return to a, a situation where the economics are so bad that there's, like, literally child prostitution, which doesn't really exist here anymore. Yeah, so. It did under the time of Samosa. Right, the whole
1: point of the revolution was to make life better. And the countries were able to really destroy a lot of the gains of the revolution. So. You know, to the average voter, they just felt they didn't have a choice. So they voted for Chamorro, though not by a huge percentage, by the way. It was a fairly close election. Uh, but they voted her in and they they kept voting for these neoliberal governments until finally in 2006, they voted Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas back in. But again, it was due to this pressure that the U.S. put on them.
0: You know? two things um how was um how was the standinista movement able to get a foothold again in two thousand six and two thousand seven uh i I guess in order to like I guess reclaim the revolution
1: yeah well it's because they never stopped organizing I mean basically they you know uh after some internal fighting and after some soul searching you know they began a different phase of the revolution you know they were like well you know uh in the 60s and 70s we had our guerrilla you know armed guerrilla phase which which succeeded and now we have to engage in uh you know organizing an electoral strategy to to come back to power and in fact as i mentioned in the book it, it's it's uh uh all historians agree that uh, this was the only only case that you can point to in which a revolutionary group came to power through the armed struggle, uh, then were uh, lost an election in which they were outed from government, and then they succeeded in coming back to power through the ballot
2: box. There's no other example of this in the world.
1: This is an amazing feat.
2: But it's because... Not only that, the amount of time between the the last one election and how long it took them, it's sixteen, seventeen years I mean it's incredible very and after impressive. the collapse of the Soviet
1: Union, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why it made it very difficult and And Daniel Ortega is a very important you know ingredient in all this. I mean, he never stopped organizing. he never stopped agitating. He was traveling during this time throughout the co- countryside. You know, sitting at having meals, modest meals with peasants and talking to them till the late hours of the night. Uh, the Sandinistas never stopped organi- organizing and, um, continuing to try through, again, peaceful means to defend the gains of the revolution because, of course, the neoliberal governments tried to undo the revolution, tried to give a lot of the land back. Uh, that had been given to the peasants, back to the Great people, the bourgeoisie, and some of that was done. In fact, right? Yeah. Try. They got rid of free education. They got rid of free healthcare. They really tried to.
0: Oh wait! do, do talk about the how did they get rid of free education and how did the educate? You you mentioned this in your book and it shocked me a little bit.
1: Yeah. So they privatized the education system and they changed the curriculum, right? Which we had been a revolutionary curriculum under the Sandinistas to a more reactionary curriculum, more religious, uh anti-socialist. Um again to try to really um make sure that the youth would not be interested in the Sandinistas again. And again, they charge fees for the education, making wow. it hard for poor people to even go to school. And again, they privatized the medical system. So now people had to pay for their uh health insurance. So they really did try and illiteracy went up and skyrocketed again. Um hmm. so yeah they tried to really bring back you know the Samosa years. But the one thing they didn't have, the one thing they didn't have which was good was the police and the army, which were still loyal to the Sandinistas. So while they carried out all these uh you know legal reforms that were reactionary they didn't have the repressive state apparatus that's the most they weren't able to
0: do what pinochet did and dump people from helicopters
1: right because that's what would have happened right i mean and that would have guaranteed the revolution would not have returned is by killing all the revolutionaries and all that didn't happen and couldn't happen because Uh, again, the army and the police were still loyal to the revolution. So that was a positive, although that, and not to skip ahead too quickly, but that is what happened in 2018. They did start doing that. They did start going out and assassinating Sandinista cadre, you know, with the goal of wiping out Sandinissimo, but not through the cops or the, or the army, but through, you know. Um,
0: the c- country's reloaded <laughs> kind of reloaded,
1: yeah, exactly
2: Yeah Also, Dan, I'm wondering if you can get A little bit into um, The foreign policy of the Neoliberal era, because again, correct me If I'm wrong, I'm not sure, I have all my Facts here, but um, The relationship between Nicaragua and Taiwan, didn't that actually Start during the neoliberal era?
1: Yeah, it did, so yeah, during the neoliberal Era um. They created the Makila's Dora Zones in in Nicaragua, mostly in Managua, in which literally hundreds of thousands of people had been employed um, in sweatshops, essentially. Um, And these were mostly, if not solely owned by the Taiwanese. So they had this very close relationship with Taiwan, who did employ a lot of people. And this did be become an impo- important part of the economy. Um, under the Sandinistas, under Sandinistas, uh the first phase of the revolution after 1979, they, of course, quickly recognized the People's Republic of China, right? But then the neoliberals recognized Taiwan and, again, created this very close economic relationship with them. And, and also the Taiwanese did some development work there. So the Taiwanese... In truth, did some good things. And so, kind of interestingly, and I didn't really realize this history, it was Jaime um, uh, from the uh, Nicaraguan off, uh, mission to the UN who told me this. He said, So, when the Sandinistas come back to power in 2007, they had to decide, well, are we going to recognize the People's Republic again, or are we going to stay with the Taiwanese? Um, and interestingly, when Danielle had his inauguration in 2007, uh, Nicaragua invited every country in the world to come, including the United States. That's, that's just their policy, right? And it turned out Taiwan sent the biggest delegation, I think like 104 people or something. And they made it clear to Danielle that they were willing to keep working with them, keep employing people, keep, uh, doing development work. And Danielle's position was, well, if it ain't broke, why fix it? You know, like,
2: well, they need the jobs.
1: We need the jobs about 300,000 jobs. So you figure a family of four on average, although that's probably bigger in Nicaragua. So you're talking 300,000 jobs easily provides, you know, wages for what, 1.2 million people in a population of about 6 million people, that's pretty significant. Like, if, if, you know, they realize, look, if we pull the plug on Taiwan too quickly, we're just gonna, you know, we're gonna be, be behind the
2: eight ball at this point. Are Not only know? that, but they were diplomatically vulnerable at the time. I, over 90%, I believe, of um, exports um, and imports are between the U.S., and uh, Nicaragua. So if they were to establish relations with the People's Republic at that time and, uh, you know, shun Taiwan, it could have opened up them up to all sorts of lines of attack. Yes, exactly. There are a lot
1: of reasons. They did not want the Contra War to restart up. So they needed to act kind of cautiously. So they continued to work with the Taiwanese and, and, and recognize Taiwan all the way up to… Last year. Yeah, I guess that, or maybe the end of last year, yeah. I
0: have a quick question. So now, does Nicaragua recognize the One China policy? They
2: do, yeah.
1: Yes, they recognize the People's Republic of China, and they actually gave the Taiwanese
2: embassy over to the People's
1: Republic.
0: Oh, Taiwan had an embassy? Okay, I didn't really. They
2: they expropriated the embassy. They seized it and gave it to the Chinese.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had an embassy there. Yeah, because of the neoliberals. Again, the Sandinistas didn't overturn that relationship until well into their uh, tenure there. Uh, And again, for the reasons I said, they wanted to go cautiously. And and I think even still, the Taiwanese are still running those Makilas door zones. But the
2: financial agreement with the countries has shifted dramatically yeah and and by the
1: way, the zone's a lot smaller uh largely because of the two thousand eighteen uh, uh coup attempt, which really disrupted the economy and I, I so uh between that and the pandemic the i believe uh the three hundred thousand jobs were reduced to about hundred thousand jobs so that was another reason the Sandinistas could turn to the People's Republic because the door zones just weren't as important as they had
2: been. And also, it's worth noting, between 2017 and um, the end of 2021 or, or, or 22, when they reestablished ties, China became a significantly stronger uh, country economically in this time. So China, um, it was also in a... Stronger position to um, to help Nicaragua. By the time they reestablished relations, it might have not have gone so well had they tried on China's end back in two thousand seven.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, So yeah, the Sandinistas really kind of bided their time on that one, and you know, and that's what Daniel's good at. I mean, he's in fact, a lot of his cadre get frustrated; they think he's too patient. but a lot, t- almost every time his patience is paid off. Eventually they're like, wow, you were right. But <laughs> you know, they don't see the wi- the wisdom of his ways.
0: Yeah. I, I felt that one or two times. I've... Oh, okay. So can we talk about most Americans don't realize the extent of the violence um, for the 2018 color revolution coup attempt in Nicaragua. And then this is at the end. I'll get to do my piece against Jacobin, and Daniel Batts literally coming. Yeah.
1: So in 2018, um, ostensibly in response to very modest social security reforms that Daniel Ortega announced, um, those were seized upon for a an insurrection that had been planned for some time to begin, and and it was uh, one in which. They they mobilized very quickly to create chaos and economic disruption and violence again, again, very much looking like what the Contras did in the 80s. They set up these tronques, these barricades throughout major cities. And I mean, literally thousands of these, which disrupted the economy, of course, disrupted trade. In fact, a bunch of uh, Central American truckers from other countries ended up being stuck in the country because they couldn't get through these. Some, some, like for a month, they had trucks that they had to live in with sometimes perishable goods on board that they couldn't get through, and uh, it was it was very disruptive. In addition to that, um, these folks who man the trunches, uh would threaten people who tried to go past them. Kill some, raped some, uh, and they destroyed, um, all kinds of public, uh, property, particularly Sandinista property and government property. Um, they burned down, for example, the historic building in Granada that had been there since the 1500s. That the Spanish had built, even even William Walker in the 1850s did manage uh, in destroying that. They did billions of dollars in damage, all under the guise, all under the claim that they were fighting this brutal dictator who was carrying out violence against them, when it was in fact they who were carrying out the violence. It was this incredible misinformation campaign, which fooled nearly everyone in the United States.
0: Yes, the, that misinformation campaign was very shocking. Um so this is where I'm going to have my uh, uh what do you call it, call out session. The Democratic Socialists of America, for example, um they I, I, like I said they had these NED funded goals there coming to talk about how they were repressed and uh, repressed by the Sandinistas, Jacobin magazine I've already mentioned. Um TYT uh and-
1: Democracy Now
0: Demo- oh my God. Democracy now. Uh, I don't, uh, okay. I, you, you mentioned it. D- don't, d- d- that just gets my blood boiling. <laughs> Go ahead.
2: The uh, opposition media outlets here, many of who got funding from formerly no longer got funding from um, some of them still exist, got funding from uh, Western sources. I mean, I think it was 100% noticias that uh, literally called for the murder of Danielle. And then it was another uh, commandante, president Danielle. Then it was another outlet who, um, who uh, said that he had fled the country when none of that was true. Um, But Dan, I'm hoping you can uh, shed some light on, uh, you know, more on the foreign involvement. Uh, I, I remember hearing that the pension, the modest pension reforms that were, were, were um in the works at one point um was actually um at the behest of the IMF helping them or tra- quote quote unquote helping them restructure debt or something along those lines could you could you clarify that a bit more uh, because it seems like Nicaragua was sort of lured into a trap um by the IMF and you know probably the CIA or other you know clandestine organizations into, into what they knew would turn into uh, a violent insurrection.
1: Well, what happened was that, first of all, the the pension, you know, the public Social Security pension plan was underfunded. It was actually would have gone bankrupt without some reforms. So that's important to point out. Something had to be done. Now, to decide what to do, uh, Ortega, again, as he is a want to do, uh, he actually negotiated with you know the stakeholders um, in the country to try to come up with a solution. How you know what changes needed to be done to uh, to save the program. Uh, he talked with the unions, but he also talked to the business community, who by the way wanted very draconian reforms that would have really reduced the benefits uh, of the program. Um, and he reached an impasse with the, with the um, With the business community over that, because he wasn't willing to agree to their very draconian plan, which would have been more in keeping with what the IMF wanted, right? So he ended up announcing reforms, but they were a lot more modest than either the IMF or the the business community wanted. And frankly, um, it was a very small reduction in benefits. No, so I'm sorry, it was actually an increase in benefits, a small increase in benefits, but it did require an increase in both employer and employee contributions. Okay. And, and I guess it was the employee contribution increase that upset people. If that was really the issue for people.
0: The color of revolution. I, I I don't know um, because uh, uh, if they were in power, God knows they would have done much worse. <laughs>
1: right. Well, and in fact, the other irony is of course, this was portrayed as a student rebellion, and it was mostly students or ostensible students and young people who were involved in in this violent coup attempt. And of course, a lot of us immediately said, "Well, that's kind of weird for students to give a darn about social security benefits.".
0: <laughs> That is an excellent point. i I never thought about that, but that's a great point. Why would that?
1: Oh, wow. We're going to go to the streets to fight for, you know, when we're 65. I mean, it just didn't make any sense to begin with. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it it appears that it, again, that was a pretext. uh, But they did a a great job in kind of setting up the pretext and making people believe that the police were killing students when that didn't happen. Um, but it really, it fooled the Nicaraguan population in the short term. You know, there were major peaceful marches against the Sandinistas, um, in the early days, um, in April and and May of 2018. A A lot of people believed the propaganda that was being said because people were being killed. Um, but it was largely at the hands of these, you know, Uh, insurrectionists, for lack of a a better word. Now, what, what educated people, at least in Nicaragua, I think, again, most people in the U.S. were never properly educated on this, was the following. So, Danielle, uh, announced that he wanted to have a peace dialogue, again, with all the major stakeholders of the country to end the crisis. And this was in late April that he announces this. This is very early on in the, um, in the crisis. And so, and it's delayed a bit because the Catholic church drags its heels a bit in, in terms of its participation. But so the Catholic church was invited, business community was invited, unions were invited, peasant groups, you know, major stakeholders, students as well. Um, and on that, well, when finally it convenes, I believe in May, the Catholic church, their first demand is, Get the police off the streets because they're the ones committing the violence, the church said, so
0: uh, hold on, um, can we do a quick I don't know if you have the statistic off the top of your head, but can you talk about so uh, the number of police killed versus the number of ordinary people because the police have guns, and if the police are ki- if more number of police are killed, it shows you they're s- clearly restraining themselves,
1: yeah, something like twenty two police were killed, and by the end of the conflict, about two hundred and 20-some people were killed. So, I mean, you're talking about 10% of the people killed were cops.
0: Yeah, and, and, and the police are the one with the guns. So it's like it should be – if they were trying to kill citizens, right. it should have been a bloodbath.
2: Well, also, at first, the police were told to stay in the barracks. They were told not to go out on the streets at first, I believe. Well, that, that's, that's what I'm getting to. So the Vatican
1: said, please take the cops off the street. And Ortega said, okay. So he put the cops in the barracks for 50 days, 5-0 days. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the army never came to the streets, by the way. That has to be pointed out because the general's position was, this is a domestic conflict. We protect the homeland from foreign invasion, not from domestic disputes. So they never came out. So and then the cops are sent to the barracks for 50 days. In the 50 days, the violence only increases. And so, of course, the population realizes, oh, it must not have been the cops that were doing
0: this.
1: (laughs) It was these insurrectionists. And so by the end of the 50 days, the Nicaraguan people are like, okay, this is ridiculous. Please come and save us. Get rid of these crazies. And uh, the first people who came out to do that, to start clearing the tronques were the historic combatants, the people who had fought Samosa, who had fought the Contras. They organized themselves and started coming out and getting the the people manning the Tronches off the streets, mostly peacefully, by the way. They didn't have to fire a shot to do that, but they organized themselves to do that. And then the police followed close behind, and very quickly the Tronches went away. Because by this time, Again, the population was exhausted by these people. They realized who the true enemy was. And again, a lot of people thought Danielle was crazy for taking the police off the streets. Uh, But in the end, they agreed that this was the way to go. And not not only did he get the police off the streets, he told the San cadre, don't take matters into your own hands. He believed if we wait this thing out without using a heavy hand. We could, by force, push the Tronches out. We could do that. But he believed a lot of people, a lot more people would have died. So he didn't want to do that. But he also knew that if he took the cops off the street, it would show who was carrying out the bus and that this, you know, people would realize what was really happening. And both of those goals were met. And so um, by July 17th, 2018, the last town, Moningbo, was liberated, and that's how they viewed it, from these tronches, and the insurrection was put down. Again, relatively peacefully. Uh, the 200 some that died could have easily been thousands, if Danielle had truly been, uh, Somoza. I mean, he certainly would have bombed those I mean, He
2: could have easily ignited a civil war by just saying to the Sandinista cadre, hey, gloves off, green light. But he didn't. But he didn't do it. Because these people are more than willing to protect the peace of their country. It's a socialist project. And you've seen... How these kinds of, um, civilian political militaries that are empowered by the government can be so effective in places like Venezuela and what happens when you don't have them in places like Bolivia. Um, so yeah, I, I think that I, I think you're a hundred percent correct. Danielle's restraint, uh, is something I think the history books will write about someday.
1: Yeah. No, it was incredible. And I was there for, I, I, I entered Nicaragua on July 17th and met people from Moaning Bo who had just been liberated and literally they sobbed. One woman, and this is in my book, sobbed for about an hour telling us how terrible the last months had been. How, and she said, I wasn't afraid to be killed at the tronques, I was afraid to be raped because women were being raped, including female police officers. And, and she said, I, you know, they were just sobbing also with relief She said, when we saw the Sandinistas coming to liberate us, we just cried. She said, this was another triumph of the revolution. This was like July 19th, 1979, all over again. And of course, it happened to coincide with that date, two days before July 19th. So by the time July 19th comes two days later, and they have the annual celebration of the Sandinista revolution. And again, I was there in the plaza for that. It was just mass joy, uh, elation. I mean, it was the happiest July nineteenth in years because people believed this was a second triumph. They had won again. They had defeated, uh, you know, these culture type forces again, and it was incredible. And again, anyone who saw that, and if you see my book, the front cover of it with people celebrating in the plaza. That is from 2018 when I was there. And you can see how, you know, the the San Anista flags being flown, little kids dressed up in their red and black. And it was incredible, you know, it was, uh, and I was there with uh, Max Blumenthal, you know, and and they were selling beer in the pause and we were just getting trashed and (laughs) celebrating and dancing with people. Uh, It was incredible. And again, to see that, you wouldn't, and then Danielle came out and Danielle spoke like, This is not a dictator. This is, you know, this is not a guy who just put down, violently put down a popular rebellion. This is a guy who was now being applauded for having defended his country. And in fact, the song that was playing, one song that kept playing in the plaza, and then I heard everywhere, it became a huge hit on the radio, was Danielle Cicada, Danielle Will Stay, which was written Ah. by by this mariachi band. Ah.
2: I love that song. The great song,
1: and the the chorus went something like, uh, you know, um, Esteli, we're with you; uh, Leon, we're with you; Managua, we're with you; all of Nicaragua's with you. You know, Danielle, 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 stays. because of course the 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 motto for the insurrectionist was Danielle must go. So this was in response to that, and it was a huge hit. It it's a great song too, by the way. It's pretty catchy, right? I mean it still
2: is. <laughs> it is. Daniel.
1: So it, the funny thing is that all these new revolutionary songs were written because this was the new revolutionary moment, you know? And again, what do people like, you know, uh Democracy Now do with a song like that? Well, they just ignored it. They just ignored that people were making videos, which you can find on YouTube. All these people made these Videos and there was a certain kind of uh, pattern to them that people did, um, uh, you know, dancing to this song and whatnot. Uh, uh, yeah, well, it, so it was an amazing thing, and 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 the irony is, of course, I think it in the end strengthened the San You know, they they decided that they could not go to sleep again; they could not rest on their laurels. They had to continue to organize, continue to educate, continue to mobilize the population because the counter revolution would always be around the corner
2: Dan I actually want to ask you uh some questions based on what you just said um and it's kind of like a two parter one is um you know where have how do you see um the government's response uh post coup attempt what are they doing? To, um, you know, reunify the masses and move the country forward, because in my experience, I've met people who were supportive, uh, you know, I've lived here for over a year and a half, I've met people who are, were supportive of the coup attempt and who later switched and are completely supportive of the government now. Um, so I'm wondering if you could shed some light on that. But also you mentioned how, you know, democracy now they ignore these these beautiful works of art that is Nicaraguan where, revolutionary music. But recently, I don't know if you've caught wind of this, I've noticed that they've started to take a very famous song um from the revolution and try to use it uh against as against the government as sort of a um liberatory cry, a pseudo-liberatory cry. And that song, um, it's uh, its not—it's uh, right on the tip of my tongue. It's uh, Nicarag- Nicaraguita, uh, Little Nicaragua. Nicaragua, Nicaraguita,
1: okay.
2: Yeah, and so the opposition has very recently, within the past month, I believe, started to use that as a slogan. And of course, it's emanating from these people who, who are now in the United States.
1: Yeah, well, and again, they tried to do that during the 2018 coup attempt as well. They they really tried to essentially co-opt a lot of the symbols of the revolution and the songs and whatnot, um, while at the same time trying to destroy a lot of the symbols of the revolution. But yeah, they tried to kind of drape themselves in this revolutionary flag.
2: Yeah, that happened with the
1: MLRS as well, right? Yeah, who supported the coup, of course. Yeah, and you know, that's a smart thing to do, of course, it really confuses people.
2: Yeah, because they say, oh, look, we're the real left and we're so radical. We're breaking things and setting fires. And But really what they're trying to do is destroy a revolutionary process. So I wonder if you can explain um, sort of what the government and not only the government, but the FSLN as a separate entity has done to sort of bring the country back together since the coup was defeated.
1: Well, I think for one doing just the opposite of what you're saying. Instead of destroying, they've created and built, right? Daniel Ortega since nineteen since two thousand seven has built twenty six world class hospitals throughout the country.
2: They're working on right more now.
1: Yeah, engaged in massive road building and construction. They built this huge bridge up in northern um, the Wawa. League. Yeah. And where people had like, you know, they had a, a, a festival over the bridge when it was built. They were so. Yeah.
2: there were massive marches in support. Yeah, because it cut
1: travel time by hours for some people, you know, who who had to you know, uh, go down down, and up mountains and through a river to bring their goods to market. Now they could just cross this bridge, right?
2: And that's a common theme. I, I have a friend here who is a, a very committed Sandinista, a Mikitsu, an indigenous person, and he first voted for Danielle over a decade ago because he said to himself, this is what he told me, I promised myself I would vote for whoever built a road to my community because he lived in a very remote indigenous community and Danielle built that road.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think that is the theme. I mean, the Contra types destroy and the San East is built right. And, and create, I mean, I think that is how they've managed to uh, con- continue to have the support of the population. It's quite simple. And people see this.
2: And they also granted amnesty to uh, not not these 222, but even prior to that, there was an initial wave of amnesty, correct? Oh, oh yeah. A lot of people who actually committed pretty bad acts were just sent home and they're still at home. Yeah. They were told, you know, don't stop your organizing activities. Don't commit any crimes and you're good, right? Don't be bad. Be
1: good and you'll be fine. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And, and yeah, uh, all these other people who, who just got sent to the U.S. had been given amnesty and released, but on condition, as you said, that they would stop trying to overthrow the government. And they didn't stop. That's why they were rearrested and then finally sent to the U.S. I mean, uh, and again, uh, in truth, to the extent people were upset with Daniel, it's because he was too benevolent to these people who had done terrible, terrible things to the population. But his goal has always, always been, and in fact, it's the name of his government, right? It's, if, if you go to Nicaragua, you'll see it's called the Government of Peace and National Reconciliation. That's what they call the government. And he has always been interested in that. In 2006, when he ran and, and won reelection, he ran with an ex contra leader. He has tried to work with the other side. He's tried to work with the church. He's tried to work with business, and often they've turned on him. Uh, but the people see that he's tried, right? right? And so, um, now I think people see him as the undisputed revolutionary leader. He is like a Fidel Castro or you know a, a, a Ho Chi Minh. You know, he's on that level. Where people realize, oh, this guy's very smart, he's very patient, he's very wise, and he has the interest of the people at heart. And he shows that again by by the healthcare, by the education. And the to cadre continue to organize. They're growing, the to youth is being organized and growing. And there's rallies and marches almost every weekend.
2: Oh yeah. I mean they walk right by my place. I, I see I see them. Uh, frequently uh just you know blasting the revolutionary music you know "Sobierna," which is sovereignty um is a very popular song right now and i mean they don't just come out when the government tells them to come out they come out when they want to come out and it's very frequent and it's mass demonstrations hundreds thousands of people
1: yeah i mean it's very heartening and again this really the the Sandinistas show; they demonstrate what it means to be a revolutionary. And my own view is, most self-described leftists in the West don't know what a revolutionary is.
0: Obviously not, since there have been zero revolutions <laughs> in the West.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. Number one and number two. You know, when they they got excited with this about the Sandinistas in the eighties, when the culture War was happening. It was very sexy when he went to Nicaragua, you know, you saw all these Sandinista Anista soldiers playing guitars and they were fighting with their A K forty sevens and fighting the good fight. And it was very easy to, you know, kind of uh you know, it was a very manichaean view of the world. It was very easy to see who was good, who was bad and
0: the ones who didn't gang rape nuns. <laughs> Right.
1: It, it was a very, very, but it was a very exciting time, right? And, and I think a lot of revolution, well, so-called revolutionaries in the West don't understand that the real revolution isn't through the AK forty-seven, but it's through books and it's through medicine and it's through building roads and building hospitals.
0: I think Mao said something about how it, the like the brick that lays the is like it's built brick by brick or something like that of uh, through the roads.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the revolution. That well, there's also another great quote, and the the author is escaping me. But the quote go deeper and deeper into the masses. That was exactly Danielle's strategy between 1990 and 2000. Yeah, exactly. Again, you
1: know, where he would just travel by himself around the country, meeting with uh, irregular people. I mean, that's why he's beloved, especially by the peasants. And by the way, in 2018, there was very little coup activity uh, in the countryside. Because the peasants never got fooled. The peasants are the backbone of the revolution, uh, and that's about half the country, by the way. You know, because the Sandinistas have always been loyal to them, and they've always been loyal to the Sandinistas. Um, and, and again, I mean, so leftists in the West are mostly intellectuals. They don't relate to those people. They don't relate to peasants they don't relate to workers they and the people they listen to in nicaragua are are the you know disgruntled intellectuals from the middle class who you know fell away pretty quickly from the revolution is all you know is all those types do fall away right i mean that just happens
2: they're mad because they don't have the opportunity to get wealthy off of off of the the revolution
1: yeah and they, they they really didn't want their uh you know uh, uh property being uh nationalized and redistributed and that sort of that you know because these are a lot of these people, the Sergio Ramirez's, for example, were from the bourgeoisie you know and and they didn't want land being given away and that sort of thing they they wanted democracy that they wanted, but they wanted democracy bourgeois democracy that wasn't going to rock the boat, and when it did, they left. And that's how it goes. You know, that's how it goes. But that's who the people that that's the people who are being listened to. Those are the people who get on democracy now these days. Uh And that's too bad.
0: And sometimes people who are related to the Chamaros.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's too bad. But that's how it goes. But it's not surprising. It's not surprising. And um you know, I would just urge people, hey, if you want to know what's happening in Nicaragua, go to Nicaragua and talk to people and see what's happening. And you have a very different view about what's
2: happening down there. And the government here makes it very easy to come to Nicaragua for foreigners.
0: Uh, how, was the, how, how did you end up going there, Ben, quickly, if you don't mind telling us?
2: Well, originally I was going to go to Palestine so I could like study the situation of apartheid and resistance. But because of COVID, I couldn't get into the country, despite the fact that I'm Jewish. Um, and, you know, I had a, a friend with connections here, so I knew I could like get involved in the election observation. So I showed up a few months before, spent three uh, life changing months in San Juan del Sur, which if you're going to visit Nicaragua, I highly recommend uh, and then I moved to Managua and, and stayed for the elections. And I, as I said, I, I was I had fallen in love with the country by that point. Uh, and so I just stuck around.
0: Oh, I was going to ask about you, you, like your most recent trip to Nicaragua and how the West was trying to claim that the election was rigged and what the International Observers said.
1: It wasn't my last trip, but yeah, I was there for the election. That was because I'm going pretty regularly now. But yeah, I think that was in uh, 2021, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. November, I think. Uh, Yep. Yeah. And um, first of all, there were seven parties that ran for office, which, again, that's not pointed out. Um, About 65 percent of the people voted. And Danielle got about 75% of the votes, so he won quite handily.
0: Wait, he won 70% of the votes with seven parties? That is means he's amazingly popular. He won over 70
2: I think it was like 77%.
0: With seven parties. That's like, an, I've never heard of that before.
2: Yeah. And these opposition parties, they're still operating. They're, there's, there's one, uh, uh, the... Uh, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but um, they're they're right near the Periodista neighborhood in Managua, Dan, if you know that. But, but they have a, a whole big headquarters there and they're, they're still operational. Yeah, I mean, it,
1: it's a it's a, you know, pluralistic, multi-party democracy, you know, um, which it gets no credit for. Um But, yeah, I mean, I think all of us who went and observed, I mean, saw that, you know, it was a very orderly election, had many uh, different safeguards to to safeguard people's uh, secret ballots. Um, And, again, it was like a party. People were out celebrating while they were voting. This this was, you know, again, they they don't take for granted the right to vote in a a free uh, society. Dan, were you in Chinandega with me during those elections, or did you go to somewhere else? I was in Chinandega, which was wonderful. I mean, again, it, may, it puts our so-called democracy to shame. Um, I have nothing but love for Nicaragua and the Sandinistas. I guess I'll say that.
0: Music for this show is done by Tech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K t-e-c-h and thank you for listening to our show